0: Well, I think it's about time. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Welcome. Thank you guys for being here. The strong ones that got here the first day of the conference. So, my name is Karina Che, and I am a physician with the Waco Family Medicine Residency down in Waco, Texas. That's not what I came to talk to you guys about today. But I also have the privilege of being a contributor and also a beta tester for an app that was a free app that was developed, and that we're going to, uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about today just showcasing some of the tools out there to help those of us that are working in primary care settings. Mostly, people using it are here in the U.S., although we do have some users using it outside the U.S., and I know when I go and work each year in northern Uganda in a rural area, you might laugh, but I am using it there. And, yes, not all of the things, the medicines that are utilized in the app may be universally available. But more and more each year, more of the medicines or at least something from that class are available. So for those of you guys that may practice regularly outside of the U.S., maybe in an area where you have much more limited uh, um, formularies, uh, so your medicine choices are a little bit less don't worry, we'll kind uh, there there's an element for you all as well. So again, I am the Associate Program Director for the Waco Family Medicine Residency, and I'm also a, a contributor to the development of the Waco Guide to Psychopharmacology and Primary Care. So first of all, I have to get this out of the way, I have no financial disclosures. I wish I had some financial disclosures, but I don't have any. All right, so we're going to touch a little bit about what the behavioral health landscape looks like. I did promise you that we we'll, uh, might give you some support for those of you guys in practice. Uh, we'll go through a couple of cases and we're gonna touch on some specific, come on in guys, make sure you can see the screen, some specific psychopharmacology pearls. All right, so first of all, let's kind of define what this behavioral health landscape looks like. You should always start with a question, get everyone kind of juices flowing. So what is the lifetime prevalence of a behavioral health disorder? So at any given time, this is in a population, what percentage of the population is struggling with a behavioral health disorder. How many people think it's five percent? You can just raise your hand. How many people think it's five percent? 10 percent? 15 percent? 20 percent? Okay, well, there seems to be consistent. Uh, All right, yes, so one in five. So basically, once this room is full, or even before it's full, probably one in five of us is struggling with a behavioral health disorder. So I'm going to show this video. It's pretty quick, just to give kind of an overview.
1: ECO Guide to Psychopharmacology in Primary Care was created to help primary care clinicians meet the growing need for behavioral health treatment. Primary care is the de facto mental health system in the United States. Primary care clinicians serve most patients who receive treatment for mental illness and prescribe a majority of psychotropic medications. According to data from 2019, one in five individuals receive a diagnosis of mental illness every year. Despite the enormity of the mental health burden, two-thirds of family medicine clinicians lack access for referral to mental and behavioral specialty services. And this care gap is amplified further in rural and underserved communities where specialty support is in a critical shortage. Waco Family Medicine recognize the discrepancy you, between mental health needs and primary care providers' ability to manage this need particularly in the realm of psychopharmacology. We draw on inspiration from the chronic care model, among others, to design an intervention aimed at empowering primary care treatment of behavioral health disorders. A vital element of the chronic care model includes weaving evidence-based clinical guidelines and clinical knowledge into the fabric of patient care. Drawing from this principle, Waco Family Medicine Faculty developed a robust library of clinical decision support tools for the treatment of routine and complex mental and behavioral health disorders. These tools complement clinical practice and provide busy primary care clinicians with the best available evidence to make impactful treatment decisions.
0: So this is where I like to throw in why this matters to me. So obviously this is coming from a primary care lens. I'm a family physician. Yes, I teach in a family medicine residency now. But before coming to this residency for many years, for almost six years, I practiced in rural Appalachia. And the part of rural Appalachia that I practiced at was in eastern Tennessee, right on the Kentucky border. We served a four-county area through a federally qualified health center, so a community health center, caring for some of those people that have the greatest needs and the most limited access to resources. Every day, I utilized skills that I had gotten in residency. And I'm going to tell you, those skills were not that great. I got a little bit of ability. I mean, some of you guys may remember this from uh, your training times. A little bit of an understanding, maybe, of diagnosing depression and anxiety. I had an inkling of how to approach bipolar disorder. It still terrified me. And uh, I pretty much knew that if someone came in with schizophrenia or uh, or post-traumatic stress disorder, that I probably was going to be way out of my depth because I didn't know what to do. And I definitely didn't have therapists that I could refer them to. There was no psychiatrist in our community. There was no psychiatrist for, like, 75 miles. And most of our patients struggle with transportation. So this was a big deal. And when I came to Waco and we started to do more comprehensive mental health care, it just amplified the need for there to be some support. So that's the whole basis for this is we recognize the need. This is not a surprise to you guys that are on the front lines. There's a need every day. And so what we said was, how can we take – the best knowledge out there, how can we make it actually fit in a time and a place and a space so we could do this in the, in the office or in the clinic? Or And like I said, for some of you guys that were here a little earlier, I, I, I spend now one month, but it used to be one to three months in northern Uganda at a rural clinic and hospital where we not infrequently are taking care of mental health conditions. And we have a pretty limited formula, even though it is quite a bit larger than what it was when I first started 13 years ago. So... That was the challenge. So most of the people entering for mental health care are entering through primary care. Two-thirds of primary care clinicians lack access to specialty mental health resources, and this is worse, and this very much fit where I was practicing, which is in rural and underserved communities. All right, so this is uh, data is a couple years old now, but this is looking at various countries the lighter graph is the total mental illness uh, kind of disease burden that has been diagnosed. And the darker bars are the substance use-related issues. You can see proportionately that the U.S. is pretty high in their substance use-related uh, uh, substance use related issues compared to mental illness. Uh, so we know that we are not necessarily comfortable. You may have had great training in making a diagnosis, but maybe – The first time someone comes in and they are, they're pregnant, and and or maybe it's someone that has maybe advanced uh, uh, kidney disease, or someone with liver disease, or maybe it's a geriatrics patient, and you're wondering, do I need to adjust dose? Do I need to adjust medication choice? So, and the guidelines are not written, and that's understandable. They're written by psychiatrists. They're written for psychiatrists, assuming that you're in a high-resource area, and so there's a lot of challenges with feeling proficient in how to take care of that. So, okay. I know you all aren't family physicians, but try to put your mouth, say it's into that. I want to also see if you're paying attention. What percentage of family physicians do not have access to mental health specialty services? For those of you paying attention earlier, you know the answer. Is it 33%? We can just use the raise a hand thing again. Is it 50%? Got 50. 67%. Okay, lots on that. 95%. Gosh, that would be really sad if 95%. No, it is 67%, so about two-thirds. So how can we help address this? And so one contribution that we have chosen to make is through uh, – you notice I'm going to try and move around. This is going to be a problem for me. I've got to be tied to this thing – is to do a point-of-care resource tool. So basically this is going to be a high-yield treatment that doesn't take a lot of time to use and that uses guidelines that can be integrated into your actual care. So – It needs to take into account a few things. It needs to take into account a decision support process that's logical, kind of complements your decision making. You have to make the right diagnosis first, so that assumes this. Um, It's going to have information on the prescribing, so that includes how to titrate it, how to monitor it, um, and things like that. And then also it's going to have a level of evidence rating uh, built into it. We use the American Academy of Family Physicians. I told you we're family physicians. Kind of prioritize that one, sort categorization. All right. We needed something that was reliable, that combined top-level evidence and expert opinion. But we needed to take into account those of us that are actually practicing in clinic where the psychiatrist would say, hey, do this. And we'd be like, that's not really something that we're ever going to have access to. Or, and this happens a lot when we talk to our psychiatry consultants, we'll tell them about a case that we have and they'll be like, Wow, that's really complicated. We need to take that to our our multidisciplinary psychiatric rounds and talk about it. And we're like, well, we're taking care of that on a daily basis. So it needs to be succinct but not compromise quality. It needs to respect cost and maybe what the funding source is for a patient. It needs to not just be for the low-risk adult who has no health issues. It has to be for kids. It has to take into account OB patients or if they're geriatric patients or if they have specialty care needs. And it needs to be ethical and not industry-funded. So we, we were looking, hey, what do we do? Where, how, can we, how can we partner? And so we were like, well, why don't we go for the top published people in the psychiatric world? And so that's Massachusetts General Hospital, their psychiatry academy. These are the most published psychiatrists in the individual disciplines of psychiatry. And so we partnered with them. Here's some of their faces. doesn't matter that you remember them. Uh, and so just to give an example, the three on the left – Are child and adolescent psychiatrists uh, that specialize in this? These are the most published people in child and adolescent psychiatry in the world. Then on the people on your right are for uh, for women's mental health and so dealing often with also high risk obstetrical issues. So, how do we go about this process? So, first of all, I'm going to stop right here. I don't want to drone on. How many people in here in the last year? have either heard about or taken care of someone with a complex mental health uh, uh, concern and they didn't, have, they didn't have what they needed to take care of the person where they felt comfortable. Okay, so maybe about half of you guys. Well, even if this is only for half of you guys, uh, I always tell you, tell people whenever I did give this talk, the other half of you might not have that situation, but you know someone that you can share this with. And this is a big deal because if you're sitting in front of someone – and they have a very real need. This is a person, this is a, this is a mom who can't take care of her child. Or this is, a, or this is a, um, maybe a primary breadwinner in the family, and they can't even go to work because they're so debilitated by their PTSD. Or whatever else. Or every doctor or uh, nurse practitioner, PA, uh, clinician uh, that has seen them has said, "This is too complicated for me. I'm going to refer you to psychiatry, and hopefully you can see them, but hey, the wait list is six, 12, 18 months, because hey, in our area it's at least six months to see a pediatric psychiatrist, and there aren't any in our community. We have to refer them out almost an hour away. And we live in a community of 150,000 people. So what we do, we look at the literature and clinical guidelines. So we take that and we synthesize that down to something that might look like something that a primary care clinician could actually work through. Hey, you've made the diagnosis of depression. Do they have any health issues? Yes. Go down this pile. Okay, is it mild, moderate, or severe, and have we tried any other medicines before? So we bring that together and got got this pretty little decision support tool. We then take that independently to two experts in the field, the top published people in these individual disciplines. So we don't have a child and adolescent psychiatrist looking at women's health We have a child and adolescent psychiatrist looking at things for kids. They independently give their feedback on this tool, and then we bring that back together for a final review. And then they, take a, and then they do one last sign-off with our experts on that. And then we publish it. It takes into account... Individual support tools for things that often aren't included in most guidelines. What if you have hepatic impairment, renal impairment? What if you have cardiac disease? What if you're an obese patient and you want to think about less metabolically active medicines or it's a geriatric patient? If it's a woman who could get pregnant, is pregnant or is postpartum, and then kids. So this is a quick video just to see, hey, how do you do this
1: thing? A weekly guide to psychopharmacology in primary care is a tool developed by the faculty of the Waco Family Medicine Residency in consultation with the faculty of the Massachusetts General Hospital Psychiatry Academy. Each decision support tool provides recommendations for the treatment of a behavioral health disorder. The tools start at the diagnosis and move in a logical, linear fashion from top to bottom. Generally, the standardized color scheme reflects different treatment options. With red indicating first-choice treatment, and green for second-choice pharmacotherapy. In instances with multiple options, but one medication is preferred over another due to either efficacy, tolerability, intensity, or expert opinion, this is denoted by numbering. Each tool is accompanied with dosing recommendations, titration schedules, and side effects for all listed medicines. Please be aware that the side effect list is not exhaustive and should not replace the typical review of side effects and interactions performed in standard practice. Additionally, some tools include strength of recommendation statements, which are intended to provide users with an understanding of the evidence behind the tool's recommendations. These statements also include references to the medical literature. As you navigate through this resource, please keep a few things in mind. First, these tools are intended for primary care settings. Second, these tools assume an accurate behavioral health diagnosis. Third, these tools should be used to supplement, not supplant, clinical judgment and recommendations from authoritative professional bodies. In the end, no tool is a substitute for independent clinical judgment informed by medical knowledge and experience. Therefore, over-reliance on this tool may lead to errors. As methods evolve and further decision support tools are developed, You can find the most current edition of the Waco Guide on this website, www.wacoguide.com or the Waco Guide app. Please feel free to contact us with any questions, concerns, or recommendations on how to improve the tool in future editions. We hope the Waco Guide is readily applicable and helpful to your practice.
0: I have to tell you, our editorial team gets really a kick out of watching those videos. They spend a lot of time making sure that they – they did not make them, but they, they love seeing them. And the reason is they wanted to make this as easy and user-friendly. I still think that it's kind of funny how they how they came out, but I think it's a lot of fun. So – I, told, I asked some of you all before to go ahead and hop on the Wi-Fi, the Southeast Christian Guest one, and then either to go to the website, WacoGuide.org, or to download the app, Waco Guide in the iOS or Android uh, um, store. And the reason I asked thats that is that we're about to go through cases, and I wanted to go ahead and have it kind of, and it may take a minute or two because I know that the Wi-Fi may be getting a little busier. There is a book form, but to be honest with you, we usually encourage people to use the online resource. We just wanted – we made the book form available just for people that may not have easy access to the Internet, but most people do, probably. And let me just emphasize, all of the electronic forms of this are absolutely free. And the reason is we mentioned no industry funded. We I, we practice in a federally qualified health center. We did this because locally we could not <clears throat> take – comprehensive care, and train the next generation of people taking care of people if we didn't have a good support tool for them. We could make the diagnosis, but we needed to know, hey, I know what to use first line. I think I know what to use second line if it doesn't work out. But, hey, what if this person's pregnant? What if first and second and third line don't work out? Where do I go from there? All right, so this is what the app looks like. I know it's kind of small, so if you've got it on your screen, just pull it up. So this is actually if the tab on the very bottom left on the app, So this is is actually walking you through basically how to do this. The top level, you pick a diagnosis. And here they pick generalized anxiety disorder. The next level, you say, is this a kid, is this an adult, or is this a geriatric patient? Which I realize geriatric patients are adult, but they are over 65. All right. Then if this is an adult patient, what are their individual risk stratification? In this situation, this is a reproductive-aged woman. All right. Then it's going to come down and say, Hey, I recognize that a reproductive age woman might be pregnant. Is this person pregnant? Are they, are they preconception, so they could get pregnant? Or are they postpartum? So in this moment, we said that this patient's pregnant. And then it's going to come down and ask you, Have they been on any medicines? And if they took a medicine, what medicine was it? And was it effective? Now, if you say it's not effective, one thing that the app assumes is that you've given this an adequate trial. That means taking it for three days and then saying this didn't work for me is not going to cut it. So we need that. that assumes that you titrated them up to maximum dose and it didn't have a therapeutic effect. Now, you may still not give it to someone if they had an adverse effect, but if, if someone didn't really give it a full trial, you don't want to mark that as an unsuccessful. Okay, so then it's going to tell you what to do. And in this situation, it says antepartum, so this is our pregnant patient with generalized anxiety disorder. It says if it's mild and moderate, that you can try psychotherapy or do it in co- uh, combination with, um, of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy. Uh, but if you, it is severe, you should definitely do the combination of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy. And if you do need to use pharmacotherapy, the first line uh, class is going to be an SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. You can then go down. It's going to actually walk you through what the different options for therapy are and then also what the top recommended medicines are. Usually they're going to be in alphabetical order, but on the decision support tool, if one comes above another, we have it based on efficacy, cost, whatever. So the top one is going to be the first-line recommendations from our our, uh, psychiatrist and from the literature. So you can see that in the tool itself, and I don't know if you can see my mouse. You can't. But down here... There's a little snapshot of the portion of the tool that you're at. But if you click on that, the whole tool comes up. And you can look and see how you got to there. If you put something wrong, you can back up. Or if you want to see, hey, that didn't work, what can I do next? You can do it there. All right. So if you haven't already, you can see in this QR code, but I did so much front loading, and I hope everybody already has this. I'll leave it up for, like, ten seconds if you need to scan this. Um, Anyone need to scan this? Can I move on? Awesome. All right. So we've been doing this now for about seven years, uh, six or seven years, rather, um, uh, in development. It's only been out for about five years. And we've had a pretty impressive response, kind of a little unexpected. We designed this as a resource for other community health centers, honestly, only in the U.S., not because we don't love outside the U.S., but we just, you know, we weren't necessarily doing that. However... We now have people around the world using it. We have 50,000 unique website users. We have 11,000 downloads. We've gotten kind of call-outs because it was kind of unique to have a free, high-quality evidence-based resource that your average clinician could utilize. And so we got call-outs from the American Medical Association and also from the American College of Physicians. Um, shockingly, they even asked our group to write, and not me, I'm not an expert in this. Our group to I'm just a contributor. Our group to actually write the article for the American Family Physician on some of the treatment modalities for this. And the reason is, is that there's been a hunger for this. I always like to say if you're willing to give something away free that helps in this sphere, people are going to be really excited about it because there aren't enough of those resources. All right. Let's talk through some cases, and then we'll come to some clinical pearls. All right. So, this is on alcohol use disorder and depression. So Mrs. Jones is a 38-year-old woman, so in that reproductive age. Um, she's being seen in the clinic after a follow-up in the hospital. She was in for uh, delirium tremens from alcohol use disorder. They taper her off with benzos, and then she was referred to a 12-step program. She has a history of hypertension and cirrhosis, child flu class B, and was just diagnosed during her, uh, with her cirrhosis during that last hospitalization. She has two kids. She has a tubal, so she has, uh, has reliable contraception. And that was the first time she'd been hospitalized with delirium tremens. And she is really motivated. She's got those two kids. She wants to be around. She does not want her liver disease to progress. So she knows that she wants to do something now to try and help with her alcohol use disorder. So if she asks or is willing to do a a a maintenance medicine. Let's use a Waco guide to figure out what the next step would be for her. So what you want to do on that first, if you're on the first thing, alcohol use disorder. Then the second thing, she is an adult. For this one, because since she's not pregnant, let's go ahead and use the hepatic impairment option. Uh, She's not used any medicines before. So if if you don't click that there's a medicine, Who's got an answer for what's the recommended maintenance therapy for a patient, an adult with alcohol use disorder, full, with not a, no previous medicines, with hepatic impairment? First person to get it's welcome to call it out. That is correct. A lot of us, maybe, honestly, maybe not a lot of us, but some of us might have been thinking, okay, is it a state, is it an altrexone? If you were thinking, I'm not sure which it is, Fantastic. We designed the, uh, we designed the app for you. If you were thinking, I need to make it the, the decision between these two, fantastic. That's where the app is here to support you. So the reason that naltrexone wasn't uh, chosen is that it has a contraindication in liver impairment. Uh, so a camphor Yes, it came out when I was in residency years ago. We've all talked about the 666 milligrams TID. Um, but yes, it is uh, still highly recommended and thankfully much cheaper than it used to be. All right, so in addition, she starts this medicine, but she also, someone in your clinic assesses her and finds out that she has a history of severe depression, not an unusual thing in someone with alcohol use disorder. She denies history of mania. She also has anhedonia, so she's not really feeling that spectrum of emotions. She has no audio or visual hallucinations, no suicidal or homicidal ideation, so you diagnose her with severe major depressive disorder. How many people in... By the way, I also use this outside the U.S., but how many people pull up the free resource, the PHQ-9 or patient health questioner, 9 question? Anyone in here use that? A couple people. Can I see your hands? If you're not using it, you ought to consider using it. It's great. Uh, there's great supportive evidence, and the other nice thing is it's free. Um, for the di- just, We use the uh, the GAD-7 for uh, uh, for. Uh, generalized anxiety disorder. All right, so so you want to go through, and you talked to her about the options. You talked about cognitive behavioral therapy. You talked to her about starting some pharmacotherapy. She says 10 years ago for her depression, she was given fluoxetine, and she tried it for 12 weeks, got to maximum dose, uh, had been at 12 weeks of maximum dose, and it didn't do squat or didn't do enough for her. So let's use her. So remember, she's. now we're looking at Major depressive disorder. We're, look at, we're going to go down in that next line. We're going to mark had impairment, and we are going to then next go after that, and you're going to say she previously was on a medicine. Medicine was fluoxetine, and we're going to say that it was unsuccessful. And I wanted to walk you through this one because I do this every single day in my clinic. I literally am punching people in left and right. Now, many times I've used this enough that I may anticipate it, but we update some of these things every month or every couple of months, depending on uh, we have a rolling process with our psychiatry consultants where we're updating this as new literature becomes available. All right, so this woman, previously on fluoxetine, didn't have an effect. What do you all find is the right next recommendation for her? Anyone got it? Major depressive disorder, hepatic impairment, previously tried but unsuccessfully fluoxetine. If not, I can do it on my app real quickly. Yes, that's exactly right. All right. So everybody is always asking us which one is the best. The answer is not one size fits all. However, some of them may offer a balance for certain things. So your, pearl, your second pearl is which antidepressant might be best if, you're, if you don't have other factors in what to choose. So sertraline, escitalopram, vortioxetine, and mirtazapine probably offer on balance the best kind of combo risk-benefit coverage for just, uh, for, uh, just major depressive disorder, uh, severe, moderate or severe. So escitalopram was started, titrated up to max dose of 10 for someone with cirrhosis. How many people give more than 10 milligrams of esotelopram if they don't have another reason, contraindication? How many people here have written for 20 milli- 15 or 20 milligrams of esotelopram? There are three hands in this room. I, re- I write for 20 milligrams of esotelopram on a monthly basis for anyone that's not responsive to 10. And if, but I do that because I know that, I, that the psychiatrists have, told us that is a safe and effective dose, maximum dose, for people that don't have a contraindication. She's got cirrhosis, but most people in their clinic would start her on 10, maybe start on 5, and then titrate up to 10, and be like, hey, we're not getting an adequate response. What do I do? Well, this would have told you, hey, you can titrate up to 20. So our psychiatrists have told us, best literature, these are the maxes in your Hippocrates, and then, hey, these are the maxes based on what the best psychiatric literature is for this particular patient, child, pregnant patient, whatever, to help support you in what you're doing. So she gets titrated up. She does well on the 10 max for her cirrhosis. Then it max dose for eight weeks. And her PHQ-9 goes from 21 down to 14. So we've moved from severe down to a moderate categorization. She thinks it's helpful. She wants to continue therapy. But now we need to augment, because I can't go any higher because she has cirrhosis. So... I want to, all right, so now I want you to go back to right where you were at, where you got to use the telegram, and I want you to click on that kind of picture where it shows things going down, and I want you to go from your telegram, go down, and if you get only a partial response, I want to know what the first line would be for augmentation. I almost pulled this up for you guys, and I apologize. I probably should have done that, um, but I honestly think you guys will probably get it, because most people are pretty savvy. I can, put, uh, I can put someone that's never used this app, I can show them, walk them through it, and most of them can get it in under 10 minutes. And then after that, they're like... So, did anyone get what you want to add on or augment your 10 milligrams of escitalopram for her moderate moderate, major depressive disorder? That's correct, aripiprazole. And the reason is, is that and we'll go into why our in a second, is that pearl number three is when you're making the decision about someone who's only had a partial response, the question in your mind is always, do I need to switch or do I need to augment? Well, the literature says, this is your pearl of the day, is that once you've reached the maximum dose for this, if you have a partial response, either one is fairly equivalent. You can switch classes or you can augment. You want to take into account cost for the patient access or ability to get the medication, is the patient willing to continue the medicine and add a second medicine on top of it, or does the patient say, no, I'm not willing to do this? And so these are the decisions we make every single day in our clinic. All right, so now we're going to switch gears. Uh, Most of us, way before COVID, were treating a lot of PTSD, a lot more PTSD now that we're starting to look for it than we ever were when I first entered practice. Um, So Ms. Ramirez is a patient you're seeing, has already been diagnosed with PTSD, And chronic kidney disease, stage four. So, you may not have all your medicines that you have usually. You and your nurses have been working to get uh, um, him into the specialist for his chronic kidney disease for a long time. And with you, if he's like my patients, as soon as I tell them they have a serious chronic, uh, chronic kidney disease, they'll either show up the next week to do something about it or I will not see them for six months. And both happen. So, he's been having trouble with irritability and kind of decreased mood over the past three months. He's also having intrusive nightmares at least four out of seven days a week. And for those of you guys wondering, hey, what do I treat to, a good response for nightmares is down to one or less per week. That was an an unofficial pearl thrown on here. So if you are still having more than one intrusive nightmare that's disrupting sleep a week, you do not have adequate treatment on after addressing his chronic kidney disease and discussing the importance of doing follow-up, he does agree to treat his PTSD because it's ongoing and, in, and really uh, invading his life. So let's go back to our app. So he's an adult, and we're going to PT- uh, pick post-traumatic stress disorder in the app at the very beginning. We're going to do adult, and then he has, chronic, uh, he has renal impairment or chronic kidney disease, and we, he's not taken any medicines before for his PTSD. So of this list below, what pops up as the primary treatment recommendations? I feel like I need to get you guys to stand up or something. I don't know. I'm hoping this means that you're just intensely looking at things. I don't want to put you all asleep the first afternoon of the first day of the conference. I've been coming and participating in this conference since 2007, and it's one of my favorite things I do every year. Because not only do I have the privilege of talking about the Waco Guide, but I also love uh, – I also am always recruiting uh, missionally-minded future family medicine doctors to come and join us in Waco. Or people – honestly, we need all comers we ha- uh, because – so this is my little, like – in whatever sphere of medicine you're in, we need you in Waco. And if you specifically have a missional heart to work with an underserved population, we need you at Waco Family Medicine. All right, did anyone get an answer uh, of which one of these options would you include? Referral to trauma-focused psychotherapy. By the way, that assumes you have it in your community. Initiation of prazosin. We did not have trauma-focused psychotherapy until we started it in our community. And we started it because we had tons of PTSD and we did not have any effective uh, psychotherapy for them. Then, two, initiation of prazosin for nightmares. Has anyone in here ever given prazosin for PTSD? I've got one, two, three, four people. Five people, thank you, uh, and six. Yes. Uh, does anyone know how we found out that prazosin works for nightmares and PTSD? I, think, I always think that's kind of cool. Maybe an
1: accident?
0: It a, was an accident, but... It, That's exactly right. The VA, the VA was using, uh, was doing studies for hypertension management. They started all of these vets on prazosin, and they didn't get great blood pressure control, but magically, these, these vets started to feel better and not have nightmares. And so that is how they found out that prazosin was effective, because this is an old peripheral alpha blocker. People have been using it forever. And so magically, about a decade ago, we found out, hey, we have, a tool, and now we've added tools to that for PTSD. Screening for obstructive sleep apnea. So anyone have, a, have an answer to this one? It's all of the above. Yes, I heard it. And the reason is, is that I told you that we actually got asked to write the article on PTSD. So here's the article. First line, trauma, uh, trauma-focused psychotherapy. Strong recommendation, however it assumes that you got it. Pharmacotherapy, first line. SSRIs, and there's a list, fluoxetine, peroxetine, um, sertraline, or an SNRI, venlafaxine specifically. And then concurrent treatment. If they have sleep disruption, prazosin, starting at one milligram, titrate up, it's in the app, don't worry. Look for obstructive sleep apnea and treat any comorbid uh, disorders. So Mr. Ramirez returns. He uh, he actually got engaged with our trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy he got started on prazosin, got titrated up after three days to the two-milligram dose, and he's no longer having nightmares. He's able to sleep throughout the night. The other nice thing about prazosin, um, uh, you get a little uh, benefit because some people, because of the blood pressure effect, may also go to sleep a little faster. And he got checked. Magically, he went in and did not have obstructive sleep apnea. Most of my patients, I order it in about 50% success rate with actually getting the evaluation. A um, lot of improvement. He's pursued his job at a restaurant, and the second day he had to leave abruptly after a plate dropped. He wants to do further treatment for his PTSD because although he's not having nightmares, he's still having recurrent symptoms of PTSD. So let's go back to that PTSD and adult. Remember, he's got chronic, disease, uh, um, stage, uh, chronic kidney disease, stage four. Is there one of these, an SSRI or SNRI, that you would like to give him? for treatment of his PTSD. First line. By the way, a hint. I actually said it earlier on the previous slide. That's right. It's any of those. So an SSRI or SNRI. There may be some that would be a little bit more effective, but, hey, any of those would be helpful. All right. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: This yellow triangle next to them. It says, so
0: the yellow triangle always means that there is a high flag point, so meaning that this may be a high-risk medicine that you need to look at a specific thing. So if you go to the plus sign on the app, it should tell you, like, if there's a black box warning on this medicine or if there's a, a big risk factor for using it concurrently with another medicine or if there is a, a specific one, that a monitoring thing that is absolutely necessary. So that's a good point. Right, right. And so for him, he's CKD-4. You specifically need to make sure. Now, it, uh, we've adjusted the app and the website so it will direct you if the patient has renal disease To renal dosing, but you have to choose the dose based on the, because you just put renal impairment, it didn't know that he has CKD4. So, medication for PTSD. Pharmacotherapy is first line in a couple situations. If you're not in a community that has trauma focused psychotherapy, if a patient would rather start medicines instead of at this point trying psychotherapy, if they still have residual symptoms despite doing trauma-focused psychotherapy, and to be honest with you, studies show that about half of patients, even after doing trauma-focused psychotherapy, will still need medications because they'll have residual symptoms. All right. So next case: bipolar disorder. This happens. No, please. How long do you wait for the before you- so that's a good point, and it depends. So, um, so. Depending on your local psychotherapist, they may or may not give you feedback. I know with ours, they will send us messages about the response. So I usually, if a patient gets initiated with with psychotherapy and not pharmacotherapy, and they're not having intrusive nightmares, and and their degree of function is high, then I'll bring them back in a month or so just to see how they're doing to reengage. That doesn't mean that they've – obviously in, one, in a month they have not completed psychotherapy. But I'm uh, just to see because remember, if the patient all of a sudden feels like they need to do this, either because of worsening symptoms, so that's usually – now, if in your patient population that's, uh, that is not doable or you see a high-risk situation with that patient, you can bring them back sooner or later if a patient's not willing great question. Any other questions? I haven't really been stopping to ask anybody questions because we have a time for questions at the end, but I'm really glad you asked that. All right. So, Ms. Rockford Rockford is 27 years old with bipolar disorder, predominantly depressive symptoms, had an episode of mania 15 months ago that led to an inpatient hospitalization, and is taking risperidone only right now. She's uh, Basically, what happens in my clinic is they went, they got admitted at some inpatient psychiatric unit that was able to finally take them in. They get started on this medicine. They haven't followed up with anyone in a month. And then they come, uh, show up on our clinic steps and uh, and they're like, hey, what am I supposed to do? Now, for her, that was 15 months ago. So she's coming to the clinic. She's having significant depressive symptoms for now seven months. And she dies current mania, audiovisual hallucination, SI or HI. And you rule out alternate reasons for her depression. She's not anemic. She does not currently have other uncontrolled concerns. Uh, So she desires further pharmacotherapy. So for her, you would go back to the beginning. You'd pick bipolar disorder. You would say that this is a, uh, you would say she's an adult. You say she's a reproductive age female, and I'll tell you that she is not pregnant. So pick reproductive age, stop there. And then when you put current medicines, you can say risperidone. We're going to assume that she's on optimal dosing, and she's been on it for quite a while, so you can say unsuccessful response. All right, so now we're going to figure out – oh, I didn't walk you through. Kind of a cool thing about the app and the website. How many of you guys know how to switch between one medicine to another, one class of medicine to another, one medicine to another when you're doing it? How many, anybody here ever had to do that and had a panic moment because they didn't know? They couldn't get into up to date fast enough, or there wasn't a good re- reference. I have had that. I had that a couple weeks ago, um, but that was okay because I know that under one of the other tools, Awake Guide, there's a thing where you can put, okay, person's on antidepressant, and I'm going to ship them to this anti, this class of antipsychotic, and then it's going to walk me through how to do that titration. So, or this on um, this class, this SSRI, and I'm going to move to this SNRI, and it's going to walk me through how to do that dose titration. So that tool's in there. Also, benzo-deprescribing. Yes, that's in there. That one. That, that was hard for us to pull out of the, out of the psychiatrist's hand. They, they, for a long time, you would get to benzo-deprescribing, and it would say consult psychiatry. And we would always be like, I don't have a psychiatrist to consult. That doesn't help me. All right, so it is in there, too. There is a tool for that. Okay, so what medication would you recommend for bipolar depression? So... Has anyone gotten an answer to this one? The options are add lithium, add lamotrigine, stop risperidone and start cariprazine, stop risperidone and start aripiprazole, or both lamotrigine and the switch to cariprazine. Anyone got it? This is a little more complicated. There's a couple moving pieces here, and you actually have to open the decision support tool. It's okay if you haven't gotten this one. Did anything pop up to the top if you said that they were already on risperidone and it was ineffective ineffective, and then you moved to the next one? Anything pop to the top, guys? Do what? Right. First, we're going to stop the unsuccessful one, risperidone. Did it tell you which option to choose as far as when you look at the tool? Right. So, in this situation, the options are add lamotrigine which is a mood stabilizer that has a heavy depressive, uh, uh, a depressive effect in people with bipolar disorder, or to start quetiapine, which is an uh, atypical antipsychotic, which actually has a good profile for depressive disorder. That might be a little confusing if you didn't. There you go. If you didn't have this ta- table, which is, by the way, also in uh, one of those articles I was talking about, this has all of the things that can be used as mood stabilizers and antipsychotics, and it talks about... What their FDA indications are, and here's the crazy thing. Let me see if I can come over here. So, for depression, the only things on this list that have an indication for depression are lorazepam, a fluoxetine combination, or immediate or extended-release quetiapine. Now, that doesn't mean those are the only ones that help with depressive disorder, which is why our our, our assistants, uh, reviewing the literature, and then our consultants with the Massachusetts General uh, Hospital Psychiatry of are helpful. Because then we looked over here and we're like, wait, but lamotrigine has predominance in the polarity. and You should titrate slowly. Or down here, criprosine has a good metabolic profile. So for someone that may be like this patient that might have some metabolic concerns. And so then... I'm going to show you a table in just a little while. Of all of these medicines, which ones are more effective for mania and which ones are more effective for depression? That polarity is very important. So let's do bipolar again because, honestly, we, uh, we never can have enough bipolar disorder uh, comments. So we've got a 34-year-old Mr. Edwards diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Current symptoms are depressed mood. Last medical episode, 24 years old. He's currently 34, so 10 years ago. Uh, at that time, that had 10 days of not sleeping. So remember, when people are thinking of mania, we're thinking of, like, more than two days, two nights of not requiring sleep and high level of energy. So they're not wanting to sleep and just can't go to sleep. They're not even feeling like they need sleep. Uh, I had a patient the other day where the, the residents came and pre- presented with our clinical psychologist. We, our, our conference of mental health care clinic is established like this. Put a resident, a family medicine resident, with a clinical psychologist, they have an, they have an efficient visit to evaluate the, comp, uh, the complex mental health conditions, then they come and they check out to a family medicine attending with training now, uh, additional training, and the support of the WACO Guide. And so we're able to... My particular patient actually pretty much met these criteria. However, a psychiatrist, a telepsychiatrist, that um, they uh, had gotten a little bit of information, but I don't think it gotten... I think the patient didn't really clarify, like they said, things like they... They'd gone out and had sex with a lot of people, which they're like, "Wow, that sounds like mania." Yes, um, and they said, "Hey, they hadn't slept for two days," and so they're like, "Well, hey, this sounds like they have current uh, manic uh, symptoms. We're going to start them on this." Well, thankfully, and it wasn't much longer, but it, uh, but it was an in-person evaluation. Uh, we found out, hey, there was a there was a reason for that. They were in an argument with their um, their significant other. And out of kind of a revenge situation, they did these actions, but they were tired for that two days. They just couldn't sleep because their mind was so worked up about the distress of this relationship. There's a lot of situational. And I throw that out to say that if we don't ask these questions, if we don't find out some of the context, it's easy for us to classify someone as manic. But sometimes we need to really hone down what was going on. Like, were these just in isolation where I'm all of a sudden have a mood change? all of a sudden I'm not sleeping for three or four days and I don't need it. All of a sudden I'm going out and spending all my money or sleeping with a bunch of people and this is out of my personality. Yes, that is classic symptoms of mania. But sometimes we need to hone down. Sometimes the things that we will call mania may not be mania if we find out that they were actual, like, uh, causative agents, which is very different than, uh, than true mania. All right. So this person, uh, back to the case, thankfully his roommate intervened prior to any financial losses because he was having grandiose plans. He was going to open a, a taco stand throughout Chicago. Uh, recall starting medication for mania. Took it for 9 to 10 months, so adequate hopefully dose and, t- t- and duration. Then he stopped but didn't say why. Comes to the clinic because he's been depressed for 7 months and it's affecting his relationships with his wife and work. He currently denies any manic symptoms or hallucinations or or suicidal or homicidal ideations. And you rule out other reasons. His BMI is high. It's over 30. It's 38. So let's go back to the app. Bipolar disorder, adult obesity. And he didn't know what medicine he took. So what medicine would you help give him for bipolar depression? And in case anyone needs a reminder, um, he does not have any current symptoms of mania. Because on the app, it will ask you specifically current or recent mania. So he doesn't have any current ones. Anyone get get a, a recommendation on that one? I feel like I need the Jeopardy music right now. I don't know why, but I I just, when I hear silence in this kind of situation, I always, it's playing in the back of my mind. I heard Lamotrigine. Okay. Is that the only answer? E, A, B, or D. Lamotrigine, quetiapine, or cariprazine. So I promised you earlier that I would show this, pearl number seven, which is the polarity index. By the way, these slides are available for you uh, online. So we come over here This is mania predominance. This is antidepressant predominance. So we said these agents, lamotrigine, quetiapine, and we also mentioned uh, criprosine. It's not on here, but uh, we have kind of a joke uh, in our clinic, which the the editors of the Waco Guide hate that we say this. We always say that criprosine is like the skinny quetiapine. Well, If you use the brand name, it's the Skinny Seroquel. So it's the less metabolic active. Well, you saw that quetiapine on that earlier list had a really good profile for antidepressant. Uh, Well, quiriprazine also has a really good profile for antidepressant as an antidepressant. So that's why things here over really good. And so for this patient with a high BMI, we want to choose things that are less likely to contribute to metabolic disorders. So here's our universal list down here you can see weight gain is moderate with carperazine but then of that other list there lorazidone is low why uh, and uh so what uh, the three options it gave you were quetiapine lamotrigine and and uh i think is that correct all right well um i uh, the one thing I'm going to say on here is then you also have to look at their other risk factors. And so criprazine has low, uh, uh, low metabolic effect for as far as uh, progression on that. Could you have considered using the agents? Absolutely. So I wanted to say all of these are good. It depends. If they had recently had mania, you would never have chosen on that side because lorazidone and lamotrigine lim- and, and even cryoprazine are not the first-line agent that you want to use for someone with mania. You want to come over and use that other side, so more over here. And of these, I'll just tell you, we frequently will preferentially go for a, a, a preprazole just because some of the other agents are less available to our patients or are very metabolically active or things like that, like risperidol. Now, risperidol is great. I can give it for, I think, 3 or $4 to my patients. But if this is someone whose VMI is 45, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not buying myself much benefit. Unless that's the only thing that I can get. Now, I told you earlier, I also practice at least one month each year in northern Uganda. One of the things that I do, and I have friends that practice in other areas where they have more limited formulas, the way we use the guide in those moments are if it directs us to a certain class, we will look in that class and find out what we've got. I always have access to an SSRI when I'm there, which is surprising because when I first started practicing, it was really hard for me to get. Now I can easily get an SSRI in our pharmacy which, and even get it affordably, which is very interesting. Uh, we can even, and this is nice, occasionally get an SNRI. And I don't have a lot of antipsychotics, but I do have some now. I may not be able to choose between the metabolically active and the less, metabol- less metabolically active, but I do have access to them. So in case you work in a low-resource area, this tool can still help you guide, help guide you to some great options. So at least you know what class you want to use referentially. Alright. This this goes through, I told you about the metabolic effects. So I want to try and I want to leave room for questions, so I'll do this quickly. Basically, last one, pregnant patient, bipolar disorder. So top one, bipolar disorder, next one adult, next one reproductive age, and then she's currently pregnant. She is not currently on anything for her bipolar disorder, and she is not currently, uh, her last manic episode was five years ago, so not recent, and she's only eight weeks pregnant. She is euthymic right now, and she wants to know if she should start on any medicines. What recommendation do you all find out for her? Thought I'd actually gone through. This is huge. How many people in here take care of pregnant women or deliver babies? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Actually, quite a few of you all. This resource, honestly, this is probably the thing that's been the game changer in our community the most, Almost every couple of weeks, we hear from one of the private obstetricians in our town. Now, these are not people working at federally qualified health centers. These are not people taking care of, uh, of normally the, uh, the kind of medical complexity patients that we have. And yet consistently we hear from them, thank you because I use this app all the time for my patients that are pregnant to know what medicines I can use based on the diagnosis that they have. And this, makes a, this is big. Does anyone have the answer on this one real quickly? Yeah. Is Lorazidone or epiprazole? Be surprised the amount of times that we use this in pregnancy or in the early postpartum period. Here's your pearl number nine. About 50% of people with a history of bipolar disorder are going to have a mood episode postpartum. So one of the things that our teams do, if you come in and your chart is flagged with bipolar disorder, we counsel you that we would like to start you preventatively on a medicine if you're not already on a medicine because a lot of women – that are postpartum and have these episodes, it is severely disruptive to their ability to care for their child. Even if the only thing that happens is they have very severe severe symptoms and they come in to see you, that's bad enough. But most of these people are having much more debilitating symptoms than that. So if you take care of pregnant women, I really want you to encourage you to think about this and encourage these pregnant women to be on treatment to to prevent having a mood episode postpartum. All right. I don't know if we're going to really have time for this PD case, but it's a 14-year-old with generalized anxiety disorder. Let's just run through, and I'll tell you um, that this this 14-year-old has been on fluoxetine, max dose, and an inadequate response after eight weeks at max dose. That eight weeks is sort of the magical, like, this is how long on a max dose to say that something – many of our patients may not stick out of medicine for eight weeks, but that is sort of in the literature the kind of ideal – time period. So it's okay if you uh, haven't gotten to this one. But so currently on phloxetine, max dose. Floxetine is often chosen in the adolescent population. Um, Many of you all that treat adult uh, generalized anxiety disorder may not preferentially pull for uh, phloxetine. It's very activating, so sometimes it's going to have more anxiety symptoms. But it also has been the most extensively studied in the adolescent population. So if you're going to pick a first-line thing, almost always we're going to pick fluoxetine. And so just so you're aware, it's still first-line because of the fact that we have the most research in it. So anyone have an idea of what this patient should be? Do we want to add something? Do we want to switch to something? Throw it out as soon as you get it. That's right. Search lane. So pearl number 10. How many people in this room have heard this statement, I am nervous about starting this teenager on a medicine for their depression or anxiety because they might commit suicide? How many people have thought that? I remember I used to have that thought. So here's the reality of it. Almost 5,000 patients in a, in a meta-analysis of 24 studies where they have patient-level data uh, of those something ridiculous, I think it was like 15 or 16 of the the studies were looking specifically at major depressive disorder. The other eight were a combination of adrenaline anxiety disorder, OCD, uh, um, seasonal affective disorder, or ADHD. Of those, the difference between between, um, suicidality, not suicide, suicidality was 2% uh, not on meds, 4% with, uh, uh, with meds, and none of those 4,582 people actually progressed to suicide. So the reality is we have this overarching belief that if we start this medicine that we are going to cause a person to have suicide. The reality is, is that the more severe someone is with their depression, the more likely and more at risk they are for suicide. So if you have a child that is at risk for suicide, the actual answer should be that you treat them because that will reduce their risk of suicide. It's not that we're worried about that it's going to uh, increase their risk of actually uh, actually committing suicide. And the difference between the medicines was quite small as far as the variability, even, even within the class. So as far as should I be using one medicine versus the other, you should be using a medicine. And, yes, try and use the ones that are most studied, so fluoxetine, sertraline, things like that. So please, if you don't take away anything else from this talk, please, please – Use your resources if a patient has certain risk factors. Two, those pregnant women with bipolar disorder, please think about, at least after delivery, starting them preventatively to prevent uh, a mood episode. And for kids, please do not be afraid to prescribe antidepressants in the appropriate setting if they've been diagnosed with major major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. All right. That was heavy. Uh, Boy, what a heavy way to end. Does anyone have any questions about this? Yes. Does the app give lab follow-up recommendations? So the app does say on there if you, uh, the frequency to do monitoring labs. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So it says if you should check them in initiation at three months or annually on there. It will say that under the, under, below the prescribing information. It'll, it has a monitoring. So do you need to get a baseline EKG? Do you need to then check these labs and how often you need to check them? Yes, it does. It's a great question. Uh, you'll have to break me down down what LAI stands for. I don't know. I'm having a... I'm sorry? Oh, long-acting injectables. I'm sorry. Um, I don't think any of the long-acting injectables are on the pregnancy one. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, I apologize. But we can look at that. But no, I don't think any of the long-acting injectables that we currently use them in pregnancy. We do use them a lot outside of pregnancy. How often... Sections of the app updated. So it depends. Um, we have a, a, a process. It's a rolling process where every one of the decision support tools uh, uh, gets done at least annually, if not more recently, depending on if there is new high impact literature that comes out or new recommendations. But otherwise, they get revised at least annually with uh, on a full review with our. our our um, uh, our team, which our team is made up of uh, two family physicians, a clinical psychologist, and a psychiatrist, a clinical psychiatrist. And then that, after they do that review, then it goes for the the decision support tool goes for a review with our independently with the two Massachusetts general psychiatrists that are specific to that area. A good question. There isn't now, although, to be honest with you, that's been very popular in the discussions, and we keep bringing it back up. And, but, so it is – I feel like I've had more discussions about how they've been talking about that with the, the psychiatri- psychiatrists. But because of the fact that we don't have universal access for our patients and the cost factor, it is not currently. Because remember, a lot of this was designed to be used at the level of a federally qualified, federally qualified health center. So it is coming, and it is soon, not necessarily coming quickly to the app, but it is coming because the recommendations are, are changing and revising. I don't know if any of you all have had patients that have independently come in to you to test about their response, but it is becoming more and more frequent that patients, uh, some patients may have access and be, have that testing. And then you, might, then you would want to integrate that into your decision-making.
1: Any thoughts on um, adding into the app like a under, like, resources or something, some of those uh, pages that say, like, these are the different effects of the different antipsychotics or antidepressants and
0: things like that? Uh, I, do you mean where I showed you the resource tool that showed, like, the metabolically active or different yeah, effects? Like um, you know, they we're constantly adding to the the tool section. I have to go in and see if that particular – I'll give that feedback to the editors – I thought we had that one in there, but I may be wrong. If it's not in the list, then I will mention them. Because one of the nice things is that we talk about this almost monthly at different conferences, and we get great feedback. And honestly, we've integrated almost all that feedback. And and I'm I'm kind of as excited as anybody else. Whenever I find something, I love finding something to critique. I immediately go to them, and I'm like, hey, we need to fix this. Hey, it told me to do this, and this is not. This is not. I know this isn't right. And they're like, doggone it, we fixed that here, here, and here. But because – Using a decision support tool where you actually mix, the, then the app designer has to go and make sure that the, every single data point fits. You know, to, to tag on to that thought, it's a great thought, sexual side effects.
1: number one request I get from my patients, yes. okay, what's going to do
0: to be effects? It does it. actually mention that in the app as far as it's a common or uncommon effect. It does mention that under the individual medicines. So it will say there's a list of common side effects and then there's a list of rare or serious side effects. But it doesn't have the percentages, sorry. But, uh, but remember, if someone is experiencing sexual, uh, uh, um, uh, changes in sexual interest, the most effective thing initially, if they have major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, is to treat, because that tends to improve sexual dysfunction, even though there are concerns, obviously, with certain medicines with the risk for sexual dysfunction. Well, thank you guys very much. We've gone over a couple minutes, but thank you all uh, encourage you all to check it out uh, if you know someone that could utilize this resource please share it and I will pass along to our team to make sure that the resources on here are in there because funny thing is we developed several of those tables or brought them together so I'm like hey we need that so Did thank you guys oh yes yes I'm supposed to put the evaluation thing on there and I forgot to put it, a slide in so please do, do uh, the evaluation it really helps us to know how we can make these things more productive and useful for you all And if you had any other individual questions, I will be up here for a few minutes until I need to vacate because I think we probably have another speaker coming in momentarily. Thank you all.